Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 66. It is a far, far better thing. Well, hello. I got, uh, I've gotten so much email this week and I just can't, I can't possibly answer it all today in this episode. And honestly, it's not what you want to do today. What you want to do today is you want to hear the end of this book. So what I'm going to say right now is go get your Kleenex because I think you're going to need it. I needed it. (laughs) I needed a lot of it. It's a very sad ending, and I'm sure you can tell where we're headed, but um, really, it's quite marvelously written, and you'll want the Kleenex. I have spent the last... uh, Well, last week I was technically on vacation, but during that time I found out, shockingly, that I had to have the syllabus for the course that I was hired for, because I got the job teaching at the university, I found out that I had to have that syllabus written by today. That would be today at our first meeting. I had to turn it in. That would be our first meeting when I could finally have the opportunity to ask some questions. They've they've actually done a very good job putting a bunch of stuff on the internet, but for a week that stuff was inaccessible on the internet. And then once I was able to get it down off the internet, all of the sample syllabi looked like literature syllabi instead of writing syllabi. And I'm teaching freshman comp, so I'm kind of baffled. But um, there it is. I wrote the syllabus. It took forever. Andrew's out of town, so I only had evenings to write. And I wasn't sleeping because the kids are up at 5, so I'd work till midnight and I'd be up at 5. I'm a little, I'm a little fatushed. So, what can I say? I have barely managed to get some knitting and weaving in. I am working on the table runner, which took me forever to warp. And I'm really pretty impressed. I warped Huck Lace and I am in fact weaving Huck Lace. And I have a a picture of it up on the mamaonits.blogspot.com website. It's really quite extraordinary, and I think I told you that after a complete search of the house, I could not find my notes for Huck Lace that I got from the woman who I got the loom from. Of course, once I had spent days warping the loom based on my variation on a handwoven, that's the sister magazine of spinoff, once I got the, the handwoven magazine that had Huck Lace in it, I I spent quite a bit of time figuring out how to do it for my width and for my needs and and all of that. I then found my original notes on the original Huck Lace thing. And it was one of those moments, but I have no complaints. It's working out. It's only the second thing I've ever done and it's Huck Lace, so I'm not terribly upset. I also, I don't know if you've seen it, but I picked up the latest internet uh, not internet, Interweave magazine, which is Interweave Felts that um, Amy Clark Moore of Spinoff did. And if you are not a spinner, not a weaver, not a knitter, not a crocheter, but 
all this fiber talk that you're surrounded with, whether you listen to me or Brenda Dane or, you know, all of us put together, um, if you're interested in the fiber thing, I suggest you track down this version of the felting magazine. Some of it is felted knitting, which is what it is. Some of it is just needle felting. Now, last year when I went to Oh gosh, was it last year? Yes, it was. A year and a, almost half ago when I went to Maryland Sheep and Wool with my son. I think I told you that I got him a felting foam pad and some fiber and these extraordinarily sharp needles. And you, if you've never felted before, when you actually see one of these, you are going to write me a letter and tell me I'm a horrible mother because I let a small child have at one of these needles. Actually, a series of these needles. Um, what you don't know is that my son is enormously manually dexterous and felts, wow, I just really popped a pee, I'm sorry about that, felts on a regular basis and has only ever nicked himself once and has never done it again, not a surprise. Um, felting is not particularly difficult to do. It is something you need to practice to be able to do well. Isn't that true of most things? I mean, you know, I can play piano, but if I practice, I can play well. Ooh, and speaking of that, I've been watching house reruns. I think Hugh Laurie is so hot, and I just checked with my stepmom and her niece, and we all agree, and the niece is like 20. Hugh Laurie is so hot. Maybe it's the fact that he's a Brit masquerading as an, you know, garrulous American. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that he has a really big brain in real life, too. He and Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson all went to Cambridge together, so he's no dummy. But on House, uh, Dave Matthews showed up as a patient, somebody who'd been brain injured as a child and could really only play piano, and it's Dave Matthews of the Dave Matthews Band. And I guess at one point Hugh Laurie called him Band because Dave Matthews sounded so pompous. So he'd just walk around saying, hey, band. He, um, but they played piano together. Hugh Laurie really plays piano, and Dave Matthews really plays piano. This is all one really long way of saying, if I practiced a lot, maybe I'd be as good as Hugh Laurie or Dave Matthews. But certainly by not practicing, all I can do is kind of be vaguely competent. I play a really, really good set of chopsticks with my son, and maybe one or two show tunes, but that's, mm, that's about it. I'd need to practice a lot more right now. But I've been doing the huck lace. I've been looking at the felting thing. I've been getting hooked on another magazine called Simply Knitting from Britain, which costs a ridiculous amount of money when it gets shipped over here. But they always have a plastic wrapper around their magazine, and they always have a goofy little giveaway goodie that I'm sure costs them all of, you know, 30p to create. But it's uh, the one that we got this month, and this is the July issue, issue 30. We got a tape measure, a really useful, E-W-E-S, get it, get it, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. It's a tape measure, and it has a little sheep on the outside of it, and it's really quite cute, and it works. Who knew? All that for probably, what was it, eight or nine dollars that I paid for it at Borders. Oh, well. It has some really cute sock patterns. And I've been knitting socks. I finished the Victorian sock pattern from uh, the Six Sock Knit Along. 
I finished one of them, and my second sock syndrome kicked in because I really didn't have fun knitting it, and the Gansey pattern, which is the latest pattern, the latest patter, pattern that's in, oh my gosh, you can tell I'm tired, um, I really like cables, and I really like the Gansey knitting, the combination of knits and purls and columns and and the cables, and so I started on that two at a time on two needles to on one big giant giant magic loop needle to avoid the second sock syndrome and it's going slowly but of course it's going and when I'm done I will be done and I have to say I'm really enjoying watching this emerge that's the fun part of cables for me you know they're not difficult they look really scary and if you've ever knit at all and you know how to knit and purl there is nothing stopping you from knitting cables except your own fear. All you have to do is get something, a hairpin. In fact, actually a curved hairpin is not a bad idea to hold a stitch or two or three for you. And then you just forget about those stitches either in the front or in the back and you knit on. And then whenever the pattern tells you to, you slip those stitches back onto the left hand needle, which effectively crosses those stitches with the few that you just knit either crossing in the front or crossing in the back, and lo and behold, you have created a cable. It is truly and honestly that simple. Never fear the cable. And for reasons which I can't understand, except perhaps brain damage or exhaustion, that reminds me of the movie I watched last night. I finally, I was just so tired. I said, that's it. I can't work anymore. I have done whatever I'm going to do. I don't have a brain cell left. I'm going to knit and watch whatever happens to be on pay-per-view or HBO. Nothing was on HBO. So I flipped through the pay-per-view stuff and there's a lot that I didn't want to see. 300, the big violent Spartan epic, which I'm curious about, but I'm kind of over the high body count filmmaking. I mean, I did RoboCop and all the Terminators and, oh, what was that Schwarzenegger movie with Jamie Lee Curtis that I really disliked? Anyway, I watched all of those back back when I was young, and I'm kind of over the high body count thing. It just doesn't do it for me anymore. But Denzel Washington does. <laughs> and Denzel's movie Deja Vu, which got panned by the critics, was on TV. And up until the last, I don't know, 47 seconds, I could not figure out why they panned it. I mean, Val Kilmer's in it, and he's no slouch, although he is suddenly very heavy which surprised me and made me honestly feel much better for having gained weight. Now now that I'm starting to lose it again, it's like, woohoo, I can lose weight when Val Kilmer can't. But then, um, oh, what's his name? The guy who was in um, The Hebrew Hammer, <laughs> which is a really goofy comedy movie about a Hasidic Jew who was a superhero. It's kind of a local thing. If you live in Brooklyn, it's very funny. And then um, there are a couple other people who I recognized who are great. And of course, Denzel, who could read the phone book, and I love it. The last 45 seconds really blew it. There's only so much that you can do with the space-time continuum <laughs> creatively without just defying all logic. Not that, you know, anything is settled about the space-time continuum, or whether or not it's actually a continuum, or whether it's cyclic or circular or bendable. Nobody really knows, but there are certain things that kind of do defy logic, at least in script world. Actually, an ex-boyfriend of mine, Brian Swenlin, who is a writer for um, Disney 
animation things. Oh, and I guess he's done a bunch of different animation. He's not just at Disney anymore. Anyway, evidently he wrote a pinky in the brain that was about time travel that got an award, should have gotten an award. I keep reading reviews and it says, oh, Swenlin invented some something that should you know, change the way people think of time travel in goofy little movies or cartoons like Pinky and the Brain. Animaniacs was way undervalued. Where is that now? If any of you know where Animaniacs is playing, if it's on like Nick at Night or Cartoon Network or something, let me know. I haven't seen it in a long time. And those were great for teaching. You could teach a lot using the Animaniacs very smart cartoons, kind of like old Warner Brothers things, strangely enough, what with them being written by people at Warner Brothers. Anyway, I don't know why Deja Vu was on my mind. Maybe, maybe it was just Deja Vu, which, being a French term, makes perfect sense as a segue into tonight's chapter. We only have one left. This is it. This is the end of the book. And it's Gosh, how long ago did we start this? It's been a while. Well, tonight, the title of the chapter is The Footsteps Die Out. And of course, this should take you right back to Lucy, back in Soho, being haunted by thinking that she heard all these footsteps coming. And of course, she did, but those footsteps weren't France. So until they came to France, the footsteps didn't really make any difference or at least any sense. Well, this kind of looping in the narrative is something that's going to happen a lot tonight. We are looping back on certain themes. You will um, remember how way back in chapter one, Dickens set up death as a personified character who was a farmer who was like plowing the fields and reaping death. Well, you're going to hear that again. You're going to hear that imagery brought up, but this time surrounding the carts, the tumbrils that are taking people to the guillotine. Um, you're also going to hear him comparing the carts to the carriages of the rich, and that the French Revolution is the natural result of that kind of oppression, that the carriages have given way to these death carts. And this, um, you're not going to hear as much judgment about the French Revolution tonight. Uh, which is kind of interesting, and we're going to talk about that some on the flip side. Um, the the death theme, for obvious reasons, is big tonight. And uh, I'm not going to give you too much more before tonight. I'm going to talk more on the flip side, but I do want to remind you where we left off. Last week, Julie did a spectacular job of introducing one of our, both of our favorite chapters, The Knitting Done When Madame Defarge is Killed and Miss Pross is Vindicated. And I'm sure you noticed that, that Miss Pross is, um, she, she kind of represents love, the triumph of love and therefore good over evil. And it's interesting because I don't think Dickens actually meant it in such stark terms. He wouldn't have gone so far to explain Madame Defarge's character and why she became this bloodthirsty, vengeful woman if he hadn't wanted you to, to get that this kind of evil doesn't just happen. Something causes it. And of course, in our modern society, we can never get away from that structure Although now it's kind of played out as psychobabble, you know, you you can't even 
see a, a superhero story, some, you know, cheesy, I'm not thinking of Spider-Man here, but, but you know, a, a comic book character brought to life, like Underdog. Okay, Underdog is coming out right now. Underdog is just Underdog. Underdog, he's just Underdog. There's, what's sweet, is it Sweet Polly Purebred? And Simon Barstinister? They're archetypes. They're good versus evil. They don't need a backstory. We don't need to know that this dog got touched by radioactive whatever to become a superhero. That's just ridiculous. That's not comic book world. People who get comic book world get that these things just happen. Like if you've ever read, uh, I think it's Alan Moore wrote Watchmen, which is based on an old Roman I can't remember if it was written on the walls in Pompeii. It was written on the walls somewhere. And in Latin, it wrote, who watches the watchman? You know, who, if, if, you, if the police are the ones who are supposed to be policing you, who's policing the police? Which obviously could be a problem depending on who the police are. Well, the Watchmen series is this wonderful, wonderful series. I think I've talked about this before. There's no backstory about how these people became vigilante heroes you know, semi-superheroes. Who needs it? I guess there's some explanation about how Rorschach became Rorschach, but the rest of them, not so much. So, I I think Dickens, Dickens does this for Madame Defarge, not because he's writing on the cusp of Freud and Jung and all of that, although I'm sure that that kind of stuff was cycling around, Shakespeare does it. So it's not it's not that it's new. I think it's that import it's that it is important to him that although we are relieved that Madame Defarge is killed, on some level there should be a part of us who wishes that she could have been reformed instead. If only she could have understood, really understood, that Charles was not evil that he was actually the good guy and was trying to work for the people of France in his own way, in whatever way he could, which was fairly limited. If only she could have understood that, then she would have been relieved of the burden of this, you know, overwhelming need for retribution. And she could have gone on to live a nice, happy life with her husband, who obviously was already there. You know, he never had this, this need for retribution. He wanted a free France. And you can certainly get the sense that he's starting to get kind of uncomfortable with the way things have gone. Regardless, Pross is kind of getting you ready for what happens in this chapter, because Pross does, in fact, in fighting for Lucy and her family, make an enormous sacrifice. She doesn't, she, she doesn't do it knowingly. She doesn't know this is what's going to happen to her, but she is clearly willing to make this sacrifice. And of course, she sacrifices her hearing for the rest of her life. And that's no small matter. You know, she's an adult. It's life will continue to be difficult for her from here on out. And of course, we know that the Minette family and the Darnays will always take care of her. But you also know that this is going to be an incredibly difficult thing for her because, of course, she loves to talk, as do I, strangely. And and she loves taking care of her little ladybird, and she just won't be able to in the same way anymore. So for her, this really was an enormous sacrifice. This This theme of sacrifice is obviously a very Victorian one, and it's what we're about to hear tonight. 
and I'm looking at my notes. I think that's all I really want to say before we start the chapter. So I hope by now you have hunted down your tissue and you are ready for Book the Third, Chapter 15, The Footsteps Die Out Forever. Along the Paris streets, the death carts rumble, hollow and harsh. Six tumbrils carry the day's wine to La Guillotine. All the devouring and insatiate monsters imagined, since imagination could record itself, are fused in the one realization, Guillotine. And yet there is not in France, with its rich variety of soil and climate, a blade, a leaf, a root, a sprig, a peppercorn, which will grow to maturity under conditions more certain than those that have produced this horror. Crush humanity out of shape once more, under similar hammers, and it will twist itself into the same tortured forms. Sow the same seed of rapacious license and oppression over again, and it will surely yield the same fruit according to its kind. Six tumbrils roll along the streets. Change these back again to what they were, thou powerful enchanter, time, and they shall be seen to be the carriages of absolute monarchs, the equipages of feudal nobles, the toilettes of flaring Jezebels, the churches that are not my father's house, but dens of thieves, the huts of millions of starving peasants. No, the great magician who majestically works out the appointed order of the Creator never reverses his transformations. If thou be changed into this shape by the will of God, say the seers to the enchanted in the wise Arabian stories, then remain so. But if thou wear this form through mere passing conjuration, then resume thy former aspect. Changeless and hopeless, the tumbrils roll along. As the sombre wheels of the six carts go round, they seem to plough up a long crooked furrow among the populace in the streets. Ridges of faces are thrown to this side and to that, and the ploughs go steadily onward. So used are the regular inhabitants of the houses to the spectacle that in many windows there are no people, and in some the occupation of the hands is not so much as suspended while the eyes survey the faces in the tumbrils. Here and there the inmate has visitors to see the sight, then he points his finger with something of the complacency of a curator or authorized exponent to this cart and to this, and seems to tell who sat here yesterday and who there the day before. Of the riders in the tumbrils some observe these things, and all things on their last roadside with an impassive stare, others with a lingering interest in the ways of life and men. Some, seated with drooping heads, are sunk in silent despair. Again, there are some so heedful of their looks that they cast upon the multitude such glances as they have seen in theatres and in pictures. Several close their eyes and think, or try to get their straying thoughts together. Only one, and he a miserable creature, of a crazed aspect, is so shattered and made drunk by horror that he sings and tries to dance— not one of the whole number appeals by look or gesture to the pity of the people. There is a guard of sundry horsemen riding abreast of the tumbrils, and faces are often turned up to some of them, and they are asked some question. It would seem to be always the same question, for it is always followed by a press of people towards the third cart. The horsemen abreast of that cart frequently point out one man in it with their swords. 
The leading curiosity is to know which is he. He stands at the back of the tumbrel with his head bent down, to converse with a mere girl who sits on the side of the cart and holds his hand. He has no curiosity or care for the scene about him, and always speaks to the girl. Here and there, in the long street of St. Honor, cries are raised against him. If they move him at all, it is only to a quiet smile, as he shakes his hair a little more loosely about his face. He cannot easily touch his face, his arms being bound. On the steps of a church, awaiting the coming up of the tumbrils, stands the spy and prison sheet. He looks into the first of them, not there. He looks into the second, not there. He already asks himself, Has he sacrificed me? When his face clears, as he looks into the third. Which is Evremond? says a man behind him. That, at the back there. With his hand in the girl's? Yes. The man cries, Down, Evremond, to the guillotine, all aristocrats. Down, Evremond. Hush, hush, the spy entreats him timidly. And why not, citizen? He is going to pay the forfeit. It will be paid in five minutes more. Let him be at peace. But the man continuing to exclaim, Down, Evremond, the face of Evremond is for a moment turned towards him. Evremond then sees the spy, and looks attentively at him, and goes his way. The clocks are on the stroke of three, and the furrow ploughed among the populace is turning round, to come on into the place of execution and end. The ridges, thrown to this side and to that, now crumble in, and close behind the last plough as it passes on, for all are following to the guillotine. In front of it, seated in chairs as in a garden of public diversion, are a number of women busily knitting. On one of the foremost chairs stands the vengeance, looking about for her friend. "'Therese!' she cries in her shrill tones. "'Who has seen her? Therese Defarge!' "'She never missed before,' says a knitting woman of the sisterhood. "'No, nor will she miss now,' cries the vengeance petulantly. "'Therese!' "'Louder,' the woman recommends. "'Ay, louder, vengeance, much louder, and still she will scarcely hear thee. "'Louder yet, vengeance, with a little oath or so added, and yet it will hardly bring her. "'Send other women up and down to seek her, lingering somewhere, and yet, "'although the messengers have done dread deeds, it is questionable whether of their own wills "'they will go far enough to find her. "'Bad fortune!' cries the vengeance, stamping her foot in the chair. And here are the tumbrils, and Evremond will be dispatched in a wink, and she not here. See her knitting in my hand, and her empty chair ready for her. I cry with vexation and disappointment. As the vengeance descends from her elevation to do it, the tumbrils begin to discharge their loads. The ministers of St. Guillotine are robed and ready. Crash! A head is held up, and the knitting women— scarcely lifted their eyes to look at it a moment ago when it could think and speak, count one. The second tumbrel empties and moves on. The third comes up. Crash! And the knitting women, never faltering or pausing in their work, count two. The supposed Evremond descends, and the seamstress is lifted out next after him. He has not relinquished her patient hand in getting out, but still holds it as he promised. 
he gently places her with her back to the crashing engine that constantly whirs up and falls, and she looks into his face and thanks him. But for you, dear stranger, I should not be so composed, for I am naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart, nor should I have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death, that we might have hope and comfort here to-day. I think you were sent to me by heaven. Or you to me, says Sidney Carton. Keep your eyes on me, dear child, and mind no other object. I mind nothing while I hold your hand. I shall mind nothing when I let it go, if they are rapid. They will be rapid, fear not. The two stand in the fast-thinning throng of victims, but they speak as if they were alone, eye to eye, voice to voice, hand to hand, heart to heart, these two children of the universal mother, else so wide apart and differing, have come together on the dark highway, to repair home together, and to rest in her bosom. Brave and generous friend, will you let me ask you one last question? I am very ignorant, and it troubles me just a little. Tell me what it is. I have a cousin, an only relative, and an orphan like myself, whom I love very dearly. She is five years younger than I, and she lives in a farmer's house in the south country. Poverty parted us, and she knows nothing of my fate, for I cannot write. And if I could, how should I tell her? It is better as it is. What I have been thinking as we came along, and and what I am still thinking now, as I look into your kind, strong face, which gives me so much support, is this. If the Republic really does good to the poor, and they come to be less hungry, and in all ways to suffer less, she may live a long time, she may even live to be old. What then, my gentle sister? Do you think, the uncomplaining eyes in which there is so much endurance fill with tears, and the lips part a little more and tremble, that it will seem long to me while I wait for her in the better land, where I trust both you and I will be mercifully sheltered? It cannot be, my child. There is no time there, and no troubles there. You comfort me so much. I am so ignorant. Am I to kiss you now? Is the moment come? Yes. She kisses his lips. He kisses hers. They solemnly bless each other. The spare hand does not tremble as he releases it. Nothing worse than a sweet, bright constancy is in the patient face. She goes next before him, is gone. The knitting women count twenty-two. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The murmuring of many voices the upturning of many faces, the pressing on of many footsteps in the outskirts of the crowd, so that it swells forward in a mass, like one great heave of water, all flashes away. 23. They said of him, about the city that night, that it was the peacefulest man's face ever beheld there. Many added that he looked sublime and prophetic. One of the most remarkable sufferers, by the same acts, a woman, had asked at the foot of the same scaffold not long before to be allowed to write down the thoughts that were inspiring her. If he had given any utterance to his, and they were prophetic, they would have been these. I see Barsad and Cly, Defarge, the Vengeance, the Juryman, the Judge, 
long ranks of the new oppressors who have risen on the destruction of the old, perishing by this retributive instrument, before it shall cease out of its present use. I see a beautiful city, and a brilliant people rising from this abyss, and in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats, through long years to come, I see the evil of this time, and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth, gradually making expiation for itself and wearing out. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy, in that England which I shall see no more. I see her with a child upon her bosom, who bears my name. I see her father, aged and bent, but otherwise restored, and faithful to all men in his healing office, and at peace. I see the good old man, so long their friend, in ten years' time, enriching them with all he has, and passing tranquilly to his reward. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts, and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. And I know that each was not more honoured and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man, winning his way up in that path of life which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. I see him, foremost of just judges and honoured men, bringing a boy of my name, with a forehead that I know, and golden hair, to this place, then fair to look upon, with not a trace of this day's disfigurement. And I hear him tell the child my story, with a tender and a faltering voice. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. End of Book 3 Chapter 15 And the End of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens Well, I thought this time I wasn't going to tear up. <laughs> because, you know, I've listened to this about 17 times now, and I still, it gets me, which is hysterical in one way, because, as I told you at the beginning of all this, I read the uh, first two chapters and the last chapter. I got an A on my test when I was a freshman in high school, and it affected me not at all. Which, of course, isn't a surprise. If you don't know who Sidney is and what this chapter really represents, then it, it just means nothing, and it's it's just noise. But the Dickens did a few technical things in this chapter, which I should point out to you. Uh, one is, you probably noticed that he shifted from third person when he was watching uh, Carton and the seamstress to first person, that after Sidney is killed, and he's, what, 23 out of 52, remember? Um, they say that everybody was talking about how sublime he looked and how prophetic he looked, and if we could have heard his thoughts, this is probably what we would have heard. And then it shifts into first person. And then he does another thing in that first person narrative. He repeats the phrase, I see. And it's all the things that Sidney sees from his vantage point of the about to be very dead person. That repetition is called anaphora. And it is 
it is not used terribly often now. Sometimes people do, but it used to be used um, pretty effectively uh, more often. And it, it does give you kind of this wonderful kind of lulling repetition. It's a, a very soothing ending to an otherwise really heartbreaking and horrible end of the, the story. But Dickens clearly wants this to end on a hopeful note. Death to him is resurrection. Death to Sydney is eternal life, but not in any kind of kitschy eternal life. You know, oh, I'm going to go live with Jesus. This is a very real moment of redemption for Sydney. We see in his prophetic vision, France resurrecting itself, that the people who are the oppressors, they will uh, fall to the same blade that he is falling to in in one sense or another. They're going to lose, although they may not lose the war they they themselves are going to pay with their lives either metaphorically or realistically but from that france will be reborn like the phoenix sydney is also resurrecting his name and that made me think of a a quote that actually my anatomy physiology teacher taught us when i was in uh, 11th grade in high school strangely not my theater teacher but my anatomy teacher there's a, a statement that Iago makes in Othello, which it's kind of a joke that Iago is the one saying it, but the quote is rather famous. I think it comes from Act 3, but I can't remember. The quote is this, Good name in man and woman, dear my lord, is the immediate jewel of their souls. Who steals my purse steals trash. Tis something nothing. Twas mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches from me my good name robs me of that which not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. Sidney, it's almost like Sidney robbed himself of his good name. Sidney spent a lot of time just being Striver's drunken assistant. And now he has this opportunity to resurrect not just Darnay and not just Lucy's future, but himself in a very real way. And he's clearly quite confident that this is what's going to happen, that everyone who is touched by this act that he performs will remember him better than they ever thought of him when he was alive. And this this transformation is, as you can already see, huge. And you don't often see people in stories do things like this. But this is a very... Victorian ending, the kind of the re- redemption of the rogue and um, happiness for those people who were pure of heart and, and pure of the spirit. And clearly, this is why Lucy and Darnay were two of the most boring characters in the book. They, the action that surrounded them had to be completely benign because they had to be pure as the driven snow for this, this larger symbolic act in the kind of larger Victorian construct to work. Sidney, the the rogue, the rapscallion, is the one who has to redeem himself so that the people who had already been living a good life the way they should have been can get their reward of, of being able basically to die in their own bed together ages from now. This also, this um, death leading to resurrection or death leading to hope is also mirrored in uh, the statement that you, you get from, from Carton that 
basically oppression always leads to more oppression. That yes, France will resurrect itself, and yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but this level of oppression always begets further oppression. And and that's, you know, Barsad's going to go down because of it. Defarge is going to go down because of it. Madame Defarge has already gone down because of it. So there's um, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in uh, in this, the end of, uh, of the book. And you also have kind of the, the interplay between the revolutionary anarchy, which I think is probably embodied best by Madame Defarge and the Vengeance, who I still could be allegorical, could be real. I have no idea. <laughs> Um, or could be could be both. Could be a real character being used allegorically. Dickens did a great job. I'm not complaining. It's nice to have something that isn't just blatantly obvious in a book. But you have that, that kind of revolutionary anarchy up against civilization. Miss Pross represents civilization. Obviously, Dr. Manette, Lucy, Darnay represent civilization. But Carton is the interesting one because he had represented kind of slothful anarchy. You know, he just didn't care about anything. He, he probably embodied a number of the seven, seven deadly sins at various times in his life and wanted to act on all of them, I would imagine. But here he, he has this, this redemptive moment where he transforms himself and suddenly represents the most civilized of attitudes where he, he sacrifices his life for someone else. There is something which I'm sure I've talked about before, the Kohlberg morality scale, where this um, researcher whose name was Kohlberg. (laughs) I'll put up a link to it. I can't remember his first name, and it only just came to me, so I don't have it prepared in my notes. But um, Kohlberg started to do research on, back in the, I don't know, 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe even earlier than that. No, I I don't think so. I think it was around the 30s or the 40s. Did some research on um, morality and what the various ranks of morality are. And at the, the very, the most basic level, which is a very childish level, everything is black and white everything is black and white. You are either good or evil. You're either for us or against us. There is no middle ground. There is no gray. And as you grow in understanding and depth of knowledge and awareness of human responses and frailties and situations, um, you start to grow in the understanding that things are not always black or black or white, that they are often various shades of gray. And Uh, And it went through, I don't know, six or seven different levels, and it arrived at the level of this kind of transformative redemption. And the the people who have achieved that are people like Jesus or Gandhi or Martin Luther King, people who were willing to lay down their own lives for the betterment of other people. You know, the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one kind of thing. Very Spock. (laughs) Very Spock Star Trek (laughs) 2. But... um, (laughs) <laughs> that was for spider knit. She and I were talking about being geeks, and, and that was my geek moment tonight. But it's a big deal, and it is very Victorian. And um, and the Kohlberg morality stuff, you should probably check out on the, the link on the blog, because it is fascinating what, what his research was and how he came to the... Um, to the realizations that he did. And it's it's something that certainly as a teacher I used every year. When I taught the Scarlet Letter especially, we would rate people in, you know, characters in the book on the Kohlberg morality scale. You know, where does Hester fall? Chillingworth, Dimsdale, where are they all falling in that uh, that fabulous scheme that, that Kohlberg came up with? So, we're done with the book. 
long. I hope you've stopped crying by now. It took me a while to start recording again. Next week, we start right over with a new one. I'm working on the research for it. We're going to do Tristan and Isolde, which uh, falls under many, 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 many names, is a very old story, which is intertwined with um, the King Arthur legend. And as luck would have it, one of the strange classes that I took at UCLA when I was an undergrad was the history of the legends of King Arthur. And I still have a couple of my King Arthur books because they're really fascinating. And so I'm looking up all my Tristan and Isolde stuff and I'm doing some online research and I'm, uh, since I'm going to be at the university, I'm going to do some library research there. And, um, and I'm going to see what I can come up with for a podcast. But next week is our first week of classes. So depending on how things go. I may not be able to record until Friday or even Saturday night, but I will get a podcast out next week because I'm really jazzed about getting the opportunity to uh, to talk about Tristan and Isolde. It's, um, it's really, I'm looking forward to it. It's very short. It's not going to take us more than a few weeks. Maybe, well, no, maybe, a, maybe four weeks, maybe five. It depends. I can't remember how long the episodes are, but um, they're longer than tonight's chapter was. If any of you remember when the movie came out that you saw, I would be curious because a number of people wrote to me on Ravelry and by email saying, well, I'd be interested in Tristan and Isolde because the movie stunk so bad. If it's really a good story, then I'm kind of interested. I am really curious to see the film, but I don't want to go, you know, get the wrong one from Netflix or from the local uh, video store if it's if it's not the one that you're talking about so those of you who've seen the bad version email me and if any of you have seen a really good version email me about that too mama o knits all one word at gmail.com if you have any information for me and uh and next week i promise i'll i'll do all of the the emails that i got i really just i just couldn't tonight i needed to i needed to just hang with sydney for a little bit well, I hope you enjoyed the book as much as I did, and I would like to give a huge, huge and enormous thank you to Julie for stepping in last week and um, and so quickly and so wonderfully record an entire episode on a fantastic chapter. And I also want to thank the people who got on the blog right away to let me know that the file was downloading incorrectly. I have no clue what happened. I was able to fix it last night, and I would have fixed it earlier, but lightning struck, literally, and knocked out our internet. So I was on dial-up for almost a week, and uh, thank God I wasn't doing the podcast myself, because that would have been a disaster. But um, but the internet's back. I have a better modem now. It's a little more lightning-resistant, thank goodness, because we've lost a third of the plants in our yard to the, the little microburst mini tornadoes and lightning strikes that we've been experiencing and in fact I hear rumblings right now so I should probably go turn off the computer. I have spoken long enough and now it is time for you to go rest, reflect on Sydney and what a marvelous character he is and maybe you know go watch one of the movie versions of Tale of Two Cities even the one where Lucy has bad hair. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe it'll be worth it. I'm very curious to see how they do them, and I'm actually going to try and watch one of the movies this week. I'm rather interested. So, have a great week. Next week we have Tristan and Isolde. And uh, until then, 
be well, be happy, and I'll talk to you in a week. Bye! You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.